This is Salt and Spine. So I wanted to make sure that this book really says to young black writers, any writers really, that you can be creative. You can start with creativity first. And so, yeah, we intentionally broke as many rules as possible. Hi there, Brian Hogan-Stewart here, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Nicole Taylor. Now, Nicole didn't set out to be the trailblazing food writer that she is today, but the James Beard-nominated food writer now has multiple cookbooks under her belt, including her latest, Watermelon and Redbirds, which tells the story of Juneteenth and celebrates Black joy. Nicole pivoted unexpectedly to a career in food media when she and her husband relocated from Atlanta, Georgia to New York in 2008. She was working part-time for an environmental organization and in her spare time got acquainted with New York's bustling restaurant scene. In Atlanta, Nicole had a reputation among her friends. She always had the best recommendations for where to eat and what to order, and in New York it would be no different. The following year, Nicole pitched Heritage Radio Network on a podcast about the black culinary scene. That successful podcast, Hot Grease, was born. And not too long after, Nicole published the Up South Cookbook, Chasing Dixie in a Brooklyn Kitchen. In 2020, Nicole was nominated for a James Beard Award for her food writing. Now, in Watermelon and Redbirds, her latest, Nicole explores the history of Juneteenth, a history that's full of complexity, difficulty, and sorrow. Federal recognition of a holiday long recognized by Black communities in America only came in June 2021, amidst the pandemic, a national focus on longstanding racial inequality, and the unjust deaths of Black folks at the hands of police. As Nicole writes in her introduction, Black joy often emanates from Black sorrow, and so it has been with that small Texas tendril of freedom, which has continued to spread and strengthen. Now, this cookbook is not just historical, it's quite modern, and Nicole hopes it will be part of the ongoing conversation on Black food in America. That it will not only be a chronicle of the ways that Black ingenuity and cooking have shaped America's culinary scene, but that it brings this story into the 21st century. In today's episode, Nicole talks to us about growing up in Georgia, making the leap into food writing professionally, about working with past Salt and Spine guest George McCalman to design a cookbook that, quote, breaks all the rules, and the importance of finding joy where it has not always been afforded. Paid subscribers to Salt and Spine will receive access to two delicious recipes from Nicole's book later this week on Substack. You'll find recipes for her southern-ish potato salad and a sweet potato spritz inspired by Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. You can subscribe for just a few dollars a month to receive bonus recipes and special exclusive content like essays, Q&As with chefs and authors, author-read excerpts from cookbooks, and much more. So without further ado, Let's head to our studio at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where Nicole Taylor joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, we are thrilled to have you. So glad we could um, have you. You're just our second in-person interview since we resumed post-pandemic. We used to be fully in person. We went virtual and now it feels so good to be back. So Wow, this is, this is an honor then. Yes, yes it is. And, and welcome to our studio. We're thrilled to talk with you today about um, your second book, third book? This is actually the third, third book. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people missed out that I was, I can't even say ghostwriter, but I was involved with the recipes and the direction of 
The Last OG Cookbook. That's right, yes. Which is a cookbook inspired by Tracy Morgan's show titled The Last OG. Right. Yes. 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 So so third book, um, Watermelon and Redbirds. Thrilled to talk about it. We're going to get to it in a minute, but we always like to learn a little bit more about yeah. you for folks who aren't aware. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. Yeah. You were born in Athens, Georgia. Grew up there. Is that right? Born in Athens, Georgia. Small college town. Uh-huh. 60 miles north of Atlanta, yeah. Left there in 1996, went to college in Atlanta, uh, lived in Atlanta for a while, met my husband, got married, and then in 2008, uh, he took a job in New York and we packed up our really comfortable lives Mm -hmm. and moved to Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn. Yeah, well you, you went real fast now we're at 2008 <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna jump back a little bit because i want to talk a little bit more about your childhood okay. and then and then we'll get to you know new to, to brooklyn and your adult life but talk about the role that food played in your life growing up do you have a lot of food memories i have a ton yeah talk about that it's so funny because the things that i took for granted in terms of food uh, are so special now one being this is summertime yeah and this is a time in my hometown where all the plums are falling off the tree and you can find them in the yard. Uh, the peaches are ripe and uh, folks in our neighborhood had peach trees uh-huh. and everyone had a backyard garden and I would get screamed at from neighbors because it, their yards would be the cut through to my cousin's house and they're like, stop trampling <laughs> over my uh, uh, vegetables. Right. And I took all of that for granted. and. Those memories are so much a part of my childhood. Also, like, church. I mean, uh-huh. I don't go to anyone's church now, but back then, church was a social thing. I was, yeah. and I don't even think it was a religious thing when I think about it. I, I do think there's some components of, the, of religion that I infuse in my day-to-day life, but some of the things that I remember about um, growing up in Baptist church that was founded in the late 1800s were the amazing meals. Sure, yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, this is a time of year where the church would have what they call homecoming. Uh Um, So former uh, members or people from out of town who have family connections to the church, in July they would come back and it would be a big meal following uh, a church service okay and the food oh my god the bounty yeah C- fresh corn and uh, fried chicken and prime rib and the thing that i would have my eyes set on would be the dessert table mm-hmm. there would be like two long tables with like sliced cake pies sure <sighs> Oh my gosh. And the punch. And another table always dedicated to the red punch. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's awesome. And and so you you grew up, you know, food big part of your life. Go yeah. to college as you you mentioned in Atlanta, um at Clark Atlanta, and then spent some time in Atlanta before moving to New York. I and did. when did you I know you write in the book that like you said uh career is in food was sort of the furthest thing from your mind yeah. for some time. And you worked um, in health and environmental organizations. You dabbled in real estate, you say. Yeah. Talk a little bit about how you got to the, was there like a moment where it clicked for you or yeah. was it sort of a gradual thing that you fell into food? So it's so funny because I, I um, did an interview for a Resi editorial with um, journalist Mike Jordan. He's based uh-huh. in Atlanta about how Athens and Atlanta restaurants 
kind of shaped my career in food media. Okay. Uh, I lived in Atlanta and I have a bachelor's degree in community health education. So okay. I was set on becoming a public health educator. Sure. Uh, and I did that work for a while, but I was constantly entertaining and cooking at home. Also, I became the person that always had the list. <laughs> I talk about this list. I mean, this was pre-hot list right. of where to eat in Atlanta, you right. know, who had the best food, what was opening. And all of my friends knew that I was the person that knew about the hot spots in Atlanta. So, um, as I was moving in my career, food was always in the background in a big way. Me hosting people or spending my last dime trying to go to the new restaurant that was open. Uh, so Atlanta really shaped um, how I move um, in food. And those feelings from some of the restaurants in Atlanta, like Justin's and Mix, uh, the feeling of being special I was nobody. Listen, I was praying and my car went through. Yeah. But those feelings of going into a restaurant and people knew you or at least it felt like they knew you. The wait staff knew you. It's kind of my guide on how I determine if a restaurant is, is great, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, I want the food to taste great, but I'm always chasing that feeling that I got back in the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s in Atlanta and Athens. Yeah. Yeah. That feeling of community. Exactly. You, so you're becoming known among your peers and your friends as a person with a lot of knowledge about food. You make delicious food. You know where delicious food is. You start a podcast. You yeah. produce a documentary. Like, is it, is it sort of a gradual thing that you start to dabble in different types of food media? Totally, totally. So I moved to New York, and I was working for um, an outdoor environmental organization. And I was actually okay. working there um, part-time. It wasn't a full-time position, so I had, like, I would leave work at, like, 2 o'clock. So I had, like, all these, every day I had, like, what, three or four hours to kind of kill before everyone else was off work. So sure. I had a list again. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and I taught myself about New York City restaurants just by exploring, yeah. just by showing up sometimes and having coffee there or having wine or having one entree. Um I wasn't writing down in my notebook of my goals to be a food writer. Uh -huh. I was just curious. And really that curiosity led me to calling Heritage Radio Network. This was in the early days of Heritage Radio Network, which is sure. a podcasting network all around food. Yeah. Um, in the garden of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick. I think Roberta's was like a year old okay. at the time. There were only three podcasts on the network, and the late Ann Saxelby um, mm -hmm. had a podcast that I listened to, and she had a newsletter. She was a very, and her, her folks still are very diligent about sending a weekly newsletter. And she mentioned Heritage Radio Network, and I'm like, wait, I should pitch a show. This was what, 2009? Okay. And I was like, I want to pitch a show about what everyone is not talking about, and that is black people and people of color in food in uh -huh. Brooklyn. And this is also crazy, the rise of like Brooklyn hipster food. Okay. I was kind of in that mix. I would say I was in this mix, but I felt like an outsider. So I basically just started interviewing people who are now big names, like 
Miss Karen Washington. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, Karen Washington has been what I call the fairy food mother in New York, um, advocating uh, around urban farming since the 80s. But I remember having her on. I had Michael Twitty on before he was Michael Twitty. Uh-huh. Fanny Gerson. Uh-huh. Um, so many of my colleagues and people who are now big names in the food world, they stepped into the two shipping containers right. on hot grease. Yeah, I did 162 episodes. Even yeah. at that point, I was not making any money. I definitely wouldn't say I'm a part of food media. I was doing it because I was passionate. Sure. Yeah, and then people started to say, you should write. I'm like, really? Or you should do a cookbook. And I was like, I could see myself doing a cookbook. Uh-huh. Uh, and that eventually happened. Yeah. My first cookbook, the Up South Cookbook. Yeah, and, and how did that come about, the Up South Cookbook? I, at first, <laughs> pitched this to my now agent, Sharon Bowers, as a guidebook to black-owned restaurants okay. in the Northeast. And she was like, no, you should do a cookbook. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, and she was like, okay, come back to me in a few months, and you need to do this, and the proposal needs to look like this. I was so afraid. I think I had imposter syndrome. It took me a year to get that proposal together. And then after I got it together, um, we sent it out to a bunch of publishers. And I remember... <laughs> So many publishers were like, we don't need another Southern cookbook. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, but finally, we, we got a home at Countryman Press, which is an imprint on W.W. Norton. And, yeah. hey, I did the entire cookbook in my little small apartment. I look back at that, and I was like, did I really do that in this yeah. small port- apartment? We shot it there. No Effects was my photographer. We had no food stylist. We did have a prop stylist. It was very scrappy. Sure. Yeah. And the, and the concept was kind of taking a lot of the foods that you grew up with and Southern foods and blending them with some of the th- things you had learned in the course yeah. of moving to Brooklyn and how your culinary palate had sort of yeah. evolved. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to basically tell my migration story, right? Okay. I wanted to tell the story of how this young black woman from the American South moved to New York City uh, for better opportunities, you know? That's the story that so many black Southerners um, had, you know, during the two great migrations around the 1920s and then again around the 1960s. But I wanted to kind of show that um, it still happens. You still have this narrative that goes on. And there's there was also at this same time in New York a renaissance, in my opinion, in Bedford-Stuyvesant mm-hmm. um, of black creatives. There have always been black creatives that lived in the neighborhood, but um, you started to see more and more, and there was so much talk about Bed-Stuy back then. It's now like still a neighborhood that's ever-changing, ever-evolving, but I wanted to make sure that I wove that neighborhood into um, the book because sure. Harlem and Bedford-Stuyvesant are definitely the place where you find so many uh, black Americans with roots in the, uh, you know, South Carolina, Georgia, and um, Tennessee and all that. Yeah. Not to condense 
the career that you've yeah. had between the two cookbooks, but I want to get to Watermelon Please. and Redbird. So, you know, you published the Up South cookbook. You're starting to write for more publications. You you take a full-time job at Thrillist. Yeah. And if I, if I understand correctly, you were laid off, and that's kind of what prompted you to really put some fire under yeah. this, this book that was brewing in you. Is that right? Well, I actually, you know, so here's the thing. Uh-huh. I write about Juneteenth in the Up South cookbook, like in one of the head notes. Uh-huh. And I remember I was starting to have a conversation with one of the editors of the New York Times, and I was pitching all these stories. And she was like, um, no, do you want to write about Juneteenth? I see that you mentioned this in Up South. And I was kind of like, Sure, I guess, because in my mind, I'm like, it's such a niche holiday. Do people really want to hear about this? But sure. So I wrote about Juneteenth in 2017 uh-huh. um, for the New York Times food section. And my agent was like, you should write a book about Juneteenth. I'm like, no. And I deleted it because I wanted to do a brunch book or a breakfast book. I wanted to do okay. something else. And every time we would have conversations about projects, she would go back to this Juneteenth book. So around... 2008, I mean, excuse me, 2018, 2019, I started writing a proposal for Watermelon and Red Birds. Uh-huh. And uh, the winter of 2019, I actually had this name, Watermelon and Red Birds. I knew that that was going to be the title of the book. Okay. So I was chunking along very slowly because I had this full-time job. Sure. And then when I got laid off, I was like, oh, and we were in a pandemic. Did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just put my head down yeah. and started working on this proposal. And uh, I wrote another piece during the summer of 2020 that was supposed to be about how black owned restaurants were adjusting during the um, pandemic and how they were weaving in Juneteenth. I had to scrap the original story because we were at the height of the uprising. Right. And um, I must say, I think that story is one of my, one of my best thus yeah. far. Yeah, yeah it, it, the uh, Juneteenth of Joy and Resistance, yeah, New York Times yeah. piece. It's a, a great story. It is a great story. Um, and you did not grow up celebrating or honoring Juneteenth, right? You About a decade ago or so, yeah, yeah. 10-ish years ago. Talk about your personal relationship with Juneteenth. Yeah, I mean, I grew up with family reunions. Uh-huh. I grew up... Um, going to HBCU homecomings as a person who graduated from HBCU. Sure. I grew up steeped in black celebrations. Yeah. I didn't experience Juneteenth until I attended a community-based organization's annual uh, Juneteenth uh, festival in Fort Greene, which is okay. a neighborhood in Brooklyn. And I remember so vividly gentlemen dressed in cowboy attire leading young people on pony rides around the park. And I remember locking eyes with this young boy and he had a big grin on his face. He was so happy and so joyful and I couldn't do anything but smile too. And I was like, I want some of that joy every year. I want that connection to black Texan, mm-hmm. Texas. Um, and I want to bring my family and friends into um, this joy. And I started celebrating Juneteenth. Yeah. That's been more than a decade ago. So every year in some form, I gathered people around the table, be it rooftop in Brooklyn, parking, a park, uh, partnering with a community-based organization, bringing another chef in. I've spent every Juneteenth pausing and eating with other people. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. And when your editor, your editor or your agent was push, your agent was pushing agent, you yeah. to, to do a book on Juneteenth. Did you know when you finally relented and said, I'll do it? Did you know that it would take this format, which is that, which is not, you know, a historical cookbook. It's, it's really, as you write, a uh, attempt to fashion a Juneteenth celebration for the 21st century. Um, it is, you know, worth noting too, that it also is the first major cookbook that celebrates Juneteenth explicitly. So much changed in writing this book. It was kind of compact, right? Uh-huh. So okay. I got the book deal in 2020. Okay. And you couldn't have told me 10 years ago, two year, three years ago, that Juneteenth would be a nationally recognized holiday. Right. Uh, I remember watching President Joe Biden flanked by Ms. Opal Lee and representatives from the state of Texas and other black caucus members signing the legislation to make it a nationally recognized holiday. I had tears in my eyes. I couldn't believe it, you know? Um, And it was at that moment that I had to look at the tone of the book, right? And because there was a tone that was happening in America, we were still steeped in a pandemic Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of conversations about you made this a national holiday, but what about the Voting Rights Act? Right. Uh, what about uh, reparations? Uh-huh. What about uh, legislation and laws to combat so many unarmed black people being killed by the police? Yeah. Uh, so I had to make sure that there was a balance in this book that I looked at both the sorrow and the joy. Um, so yeah, it was at that moment, and I was like a year in, that I had to go back and kind of reshape some things. I think at first this book was going to be very much like, yes, Juneteenth is so joyful. We should all be celebrating this and doing a lot of teaching about the holiday. But now uh, I feel like I have a balance of that, of, of fun, of joyfulness, and also of like the now and the future. That yeah. was definitely um on my roadmap of what I wanted this book to look like. Yeah. It's interesting to know that you came back and sort of revisited the proposal in the book in that way. And in the foreword to the book, Stephen Satterfield writes, we know well the hardship story and we're ready to write a different story. Mm-hmm. What you're reading this book is just that. How did you sort of balance, how, how was it for you to, to balance those two things? You know, the pleasure, you say the lightness of the pleasures of good food and the heavy of the, the weight of history. Was that challenging to do as you actually got to that point in the book process? Yeah, it was yeah. challenging. Uh, it was challenging because so much was happening around me. You know, so much yeah. was happening in the world, right? Like every day, it, <laughs> the world was on fire and I was writing this book that was supposed to be, you know, pleasurable and mm-hmm. about food. Sure. Uh, but what I always came up with was going back to my vision for the book and like really being super clear um, of the structure. You know, writing a cookbook is very much about being creative, but it's also a good cookbook, in my opinion, has a structure. So Mm -hmm. I set out in the very beginning thinking about um, essays. I knew I wanted to have these eight essays that anchored each chapter. So you have those. And I knew that my head notes needed to do a few things. Some of them just needed to be um, expansions uh, around cooking and giving people tips I wanted to have very funny anecdotes in the book and stories that were in my voice that made people laugh. I knew that I wanted to put um, history in the book. So Mm -hmm. I would decide, like, 
is this head note a historical head note? Is this uh, a head note based on recipes? Is this a head note that's telling a funny story? Uh -huh. And also this other thing that was at the bottom of everything that I did was, is the content and the recipes in this book pointing towards the future? Does, is it nodding towards what Juneteenth can be, what someone's kitchen could be? And so I just kind of always went back to that sure. when I was like, oh, God, I'm lost, I'm lost. Like, um, So, yeah, it was difficult writing uh, a cookbook over the last two, two years up under so much that was happening in the world, but I stayed focused. Yeah. And you, you went to Athens for a while to, yeah. to, to, to ground yourself, you say, in Thank the book God. process. Yeah. Uh, you couldn't have told me that I would be living back in my hometown, you know, temporarily. Yeah, it was really great that when I started getting to the nitty gritty of this work, um, I didn't have to, you know, hustle on the subway. Right. I didn't have to, you know, wait on a million Ubers uh -huh. or haul, you know, all of my groceries in like two hands. Sure. Um, yeah, I worked on probably about 70% of the book. Um, surrounded by six acres of woods. Wow, yeah. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, it was. You talked about the structure of the book. One thing that you do is you open with the acknowledgments. Mm. Typically, we see that at the back of a cookbook, right? But instead of a, a dedication page, you have this page of acknowledgments. Is that something that you knew you intentionally mm. wanted to do? Uh, I like that you recognize that. Yeah. You're a cookbook person. <laughs> I am, yes. So San Francisco-based... Uh, artist and designer George McCallman designed yeah. this book. He is the same designer of Black Food. Yeah, Brian and Terry's book. Yeah, yeah, Brian Terry's book. George is amazing. He immediately understood my vision for this cookbook, which was um, about the future. I wanted to continue the what I call the 3.0 of Black Food, okay. of Black Food books. Um, I think Brian, I know that Brian Terry is ushering in, it, in um, this visual aesthetic, and not even a visual aesthetic. It's really a statement that uh, black creatives in the food space, they no longer have to define black food because that's already been done for us. You know, um, Dr. Jessica Harris and Dr. Fred Opie and Adrian Miller and Brian Terry have done such a great job. And I'm just talking about my contemporaries. I could go sure. even further and talk about Edna Lewis. Right. They've laid a great job in like giving us a foundation of this, what black American food looks like. So I, we don't have, I didn't have to repeat that. Sure. And so I wanted to make sure that this book really um, says to young black writers, any writers really that you can be creative. You can start with creativity first. And so, yeah, we intentionally broke as many rules as possible um, in the cookbook. Uh -huh. <laughs> and when I say rules, I mean design rules because yeah. the acknowledgments are typically in the back. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we love George. We had a, we did a recent episode on, on cookbook design and, and talked oh. with him. So um, it's it's I, I, the minute I picked up your book, I knew he had worked on it. Oh, he just has yeah, such I a a distinct and beautiful look um, to his work. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's what I do love about George is that you see the George magic sprinkled in, but you also, I feel like he did a great job of bringing in what I wanted in my personality. Like yeah. you don't just pick up his book and, and you're like, Oh yeah, this is George's book. You can just feel this George. You wouldn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. 
most people wouldn't know that unless yeah. you're paying really close attention to cookbook design, which yeah. most people aren't. Um, but it, it's beautiful. You mentioned that you you had the title of the book mm. early in the proposal process. I think it kind of came to you, right? Watermelon and Redbirds. Can you talk about that? Because I, I think, you know, watermelon, of course, is connected to this long history of, oh, of yeah. racist tropes and, and racism. So centering that in the title and then also a little bit about where, where Redbirds comes in. Yeah, people thought I was crazy putting that watermelon in there. Like your, your um, publishing house? No, or- I would say my colleagues and friends, they're like, ooh, watermelon, you're really going to do that? Uh-huh. I'm like, yeah, because if you see all of the other titles I've come up with, they're kind of boring. Okay. At first it was like my Juneteenth, and then I was like Jubilee. Then I'm like, well, I can't do Jubilee because there's Tony Tipton right. Martin's book. Um, freedom this I, I could just it never would hit right and I literally was riding the subway and watermelon and red birds just came to me like out of the sky that's amazing and um, and when I say out of the sky it, red birds is a story that my mom told me and it was about red birds or cardinals flying in the sky and when you see them she would tell me to stop and blow a kiss because it was someone from our family coming back to say hello. Uh-huh. Um, so I always denoted seeing a random red bird as good luck. Um, and I was like, this is the perfect title, part of the title to have in the book because it really signifies the past, the present, and the future. Um, and then red birds, I'm like, okay, what is a classic American fruit that everyone um, can relate to and I was like red, watermelon I'm like bump what you heard yeah bump all the stereotypes bump all of the um ugliness and ugly ads that were produced around African Americans and watermelon I'm going to really um center the positivity center you know, the goodness that so many black Americans have around watermelon and I'm going to go for it. Yeah. And I'm going to make it watermelon and red burst. I will say that some people thought that it was a perfect title for a novel. It does sound like a great novel title. It does, but I think it works great for this. It does. It really works great. Did you get backlash? You write in one of the head notes in the book about this food and wine spread that you did where you put a watermelon recipe in and that you had some intense online backlash oh yeah i was called the c word i was called a coon yeah it was so crazy and that was another turning point when i realized that i needed to put history it just needs to be a great mix in this book of history versus just not all joy yeah I, i think this is my opinion i think that young black americans of a certain age have never seen a full watermelon cut in half with black seeds. Yeah, isn't that I, wild? <laughs> I think that a lot of them are used to seeing watermelon in cubes yeah. in plastic containers. Right. And so the image of a watermelon with black seeds cut into, you know, semicircles. Right. Probably was a bit triggering and I think that's part of it. And also, I think it goes back to what I spoke of before. Like, people, everyone wasn't excited or happy about Juneteenth becoming a national holiday. They're like, I'm freaking mad. I've been laid off. I'm mad. You know, people have died in my family of COVID-19. I'm pissed. And so people took that image. It got picked up by 
Black TMZ, aka the Shade Room. Huh. <laughs> um, and yeah, all those folks came to my page. They were like, "She's the Black Candace Owens." It was crazy. But I'm wow. like, yeah. did y'all read the article? Because the article was in Food and Why. It was a ten-page spread. It was the first time Food and Why had dedicated a cover. Mm-hmm. And a feature story to Juneteenth. And I must say, the article was very black. Uh-huh. And it was very much speaking to directly to black Americans of all ages. It was speaking to everyone, but there were enough cultural cues to say, hey, this is ours. This is our holiday. But no one read it. Yeah. They just saw the image they, and went crazy. They went, yeah. Uh-huh. That can happen with people on the internet. We have all learned. How do you think about your audience for the book? And, you know, it's not a historical book in the, the this is, you know, a history of Juneteenth and historical recipes, but it almost feels in a little bit of a sense, like a bit of a guidebook too, mm. because at the beginning you have a collection of gadgets is the, the phrase you use, essential gadgets. You also have a Juneteenth food pyramid at the outset of the book. So in some ways it feels a little bit like a guidebook. Who do you think your, your audience is and how do you hope people use the book? My audience for this cookbook is people who are going to cook. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, that's a good one. I mean, first of all, it's a cookbook. Right. So I, being a person, I love cookbooks. I probably have about 10 that I actually cook from and hundreds more uh-huh. that I just love because I think they're gorgeous. They have great design and they're organized well. So first of all, I approached this book saying, you know, this is for people who are going to cook and people who may be cooking for the very first time and maybe their Juneteenth celebration or their Juneteenth, honoring Juneteenth with family and friends by cooking is what they'll be doing. So I approached that first. I also wanted to make sure that I spoke directly to black people, Mm -hmm. um, but I also was very much aware that it's going to be anyone who's going to pick up this book. So I wanted to speak to those folks as well. So it is a book that I would say has a voice that is very much my voice mm-hmm. um, and is not a filtered voice. It's me. Some of my friends say, I feel like I'm talking to you um, when I'm reading this book because yeah. it's the funny stories. Um, but ultimately, I want people to cook. But I do understand and I know because people have been sending me messages saying, I read your book from front to cover. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. So that wasn't lost on me that people were just going to read it because I do that. I read cookbooks from front to cover and I can't say that I made one recipe from it. Sure. Maybe I got inspired sure. by one recipe. So, But first and foremost, I wanted to produce a cookbook that people would get excited about and they would go in the kitchen and make it. Yeah. A few things. Yeah. But if it's their first time cooking, don't start with the potato salad. I think you can start you with You could. The, with yours? I think you could start with the potato salad. It's so funny It's a good enough guide. Because I know you write about you, who made the potato salad, oh too, and being a big thing, which potato salad's easy to, to not do well. I think the key with potato salad, I mean, let me be honest here. If I told my mom, well, she knows I have a potato salad recipe in here, but uh-huh. I would say follow a potato, a recipe for potato salad, she would laugh. Yeah. Because I do think it's one of those dishes where you have to do a lot of tasting and you, you, you have to taste through every single step of adding seasoning. I think that's one recipe that um, it's a guide. Yeah. You can follow it. It's a great guide, but... You may want to add a little bit more paprika or a little bit more salt or a little bit more dried mustard. Sure. Um, but I will say it's funny. 
I did an event at Omnivore, uh-huh. and there was a, a person there that bought the book, and I said, do not start with the hardest recipe. And he said, oh, I am. I'm, no, he said, I'm going to make the marshmallows. I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. He made the marshmallows and tagged me recently. Wow. I have, uh, well, actually, it's a, um, a full moon pie, and it's my ode to the moon pie, like a southern moon pie. Yeah. But it's um, jalapeno and lime marshmallows, and it's yeah. homemade um, buckwheat graham crackers dipped in chocolate. And he made them. That recipe is like five pages long. Yeah. It's impressive. I know. Um, you use this phrase black food 3.0, which mm. I love. And you write in the intro to about, you know, leaving breadcrumbs. This is your quote, leaving breadcrumbs for the next generation to follow. I'm wondering how you think about like personal legacy. Mm. Like, do you think about that? And as a cookbook author and putting these things out into the world, you also, I know, became a parent. I'm not sure how old your child is, but around the same ish yeah. timeline of the book, yeah. more or less, like, d- did that affect you too? When you think about like this legacy of your career? Well, I, I mean, two things. Yes, my son, who's actually in the book, yes, holding yeah. the corn dogs. That's he's right. three and a half. Okay. And so when I really started working on this proposal, he was a tiny kid. Yeah. I will say that parenthood, for me, uh, it changed my perspective, you know, on how I want to move in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it changed my perspective in terms of what my my value is to myself and to other people. But I'm always thinking about legacy, even before he came into this world. Sure. Um, my goal is to leave something more than money, leave something more than a house. I want people to stand up um, at my party when I when I die and say that um, I made them feel good <laughs> and that I contributed to um, making black life better. Um, I moved the needle um, in food media. Mm -hmm. I want that to be my legacy and I want to keep building upon it. So no, that was at the top of my mind. I I want to leave a legacy that is um, more than just things, but more of a blueprint and an inspiration to, to people, all people really. Yeah, that's great. I wish we could talk about every recipe in the book, but I, we don't have unlimited time. But I do want to ask, of course, about the first chapter and red drinks mm-hmm. and, and the significance of red drinks. And if you can talk about that a bit. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. The red drink. Yes. So the cookbook is organized based on what I consider the essentials of Juneteenth or really the essentials of any black celebration. Right. Mm-hmm. Um black summertime celebration, really anybody's summer celebrations. Yeah. And you have to have a red drink. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, can I really come up with a whole chapter of red drinks? And I did it. You did, yeah. Yeah, um, red drinks. And they're I, so craveable too. All I know. The photos are stunning and like all those drinks look amazing. The watermelon ginger beer I love is uh-huh. super simple. You know, you can ferment your own ginger beer or you can buy um, one of your favorite ginger beers and, you know, buy you a big, beautiful melon. You can even do, listen, you could buy yellow melon, sure, watermelon, and um, do the same, uh, go through the same process. You'll have just a different co- color. You won't have the red drink. Right. But what's so significant, I think that's the question you're asking me about the red drink, is mm-hmm. that black people across the globe, I mean, from Brazil to Senegal to Guadeloupe to Martinique to um, 
Sumter, South Carolina. Um, we tend to gather around a vessel of red punch or pours of red drink, and it really goes all the way back to um, the transatlantic slave, slave trade. You find that in West Africa, um, the hibiscus plant um, was soaked in water. Uh, the bud or the petals soaked in water, sugar may be added, or, and or spices. And that drinking ritual really just went, or is all around the diaspora, and it didn't die. I like to say it's in our veins. So when enslaved folks arrived in the United States, um, you started to see a variation of that red drink um, in various forms, the cola nut or mm -hmm. strawberry tea, uh, excuse me, strawberry um, uh, shrubs. Uh -huh. So when you read old plantation books, you see all these red drinks um, were in the kitchen, and we know that the hands in the kitchen were enslaved people. So right. that tradition has stayed with us for uh, generations. Um, so why not include a whole chapter dedicated to red drinks in all yeah. forms? And they're, they're very modern, right? The, the Miso Bloody Mary? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, delicious. Uh, you mentioned a number of cookbook authors already, but we always like to ask if there's an author or two or a particular couple books that have been really sort of the core books for you, meaningful in your career. Ooh, that I, is a good question. You know, it's hard to narrow sometimes. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, Edna Lewis, Taste of Country Cooking, mm -hmm. that is a book. I mean, I know it sounds so cliche because everyone says it, but I'm not going to lie. I mean, just reading. I've read her book, that book, cover to cover. Yeah. A million gazillion times. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful book. Crazily, I'm going to have to say that early on, I was just obsessed with Martha Stewart. Okay. Um, and so I have a lot of Martha books. Okay. Uh, from baking. Uh, she had a very small magazine back in the day, probably in the 2000s, uh, called Everyday Food. Right. And I've held on to that set, like every issue. Um, I loved Martha because of a few things. And I think one is her being an entrepreneur, like mm -hmm. turning cookbooks into a, a, an empire, you know, an entire empire. So um, she definitely for sure is one of those people. And in the same vein of Martha Stewart, B. Smith, yeah. um, the late B. Smith, uh, crazily a lot of people call her the black Martha Stewart, uh -huh. uh, but her books have been very instrumental in her career and you know how do you be just more than a food media person right yeah um and i will say i've said brian terry again but yeah. brian terry is a dear friend he's a mentor to me in a very modern sense he's someone um that i can call who understands what it means to be on book tour sure. or you know navigate very hard conversations his books are books that I go back time and time again to say, what did he do? Or how can I push the boundaries um, yeah. in the collective? So those are a few, f few. And then Harriet Cole, I have to bring up Harriet Cole. She's not a cookbook writer. She has been uh, helping me along this journey of promoting this book. Okay. Harriet Cole wrote How to Be, and she is in the bibliography or what I call Notes on Juneteenth, her book that came out 20 years ago um it's about black etiquette and 
She is a former editor at both Ebony and um, Essence Magazine. Um, so those are people, it's, I kind of have this eclectic, I know you said foot, cookbooks, but those are books that I yeah. tend to go back to when I'm doing research or just trying to gather my head and thoughts around how to move forward with a, with a food media project. Yeah, of course. Well, we always end with a little game. So yeah. we've got um, some stacks of cards Ooh. here for you. And I thought the theme for our game today would be, you know, you're hosting a cookout. You write, there's a chapter Ooh. called The Cookout and Barbecue. You write, the cookout is sacred. Gather your tribe whenever you can and feed them well. So I thought that felt like a fitting theme for, for our game today. So like. you have four options there, proteins, flavors, vegetables, and then the secret ingredient. So if you want, you can draw one from each pile and that'll kind of be the basket of goods that you're working with you can assume you have you know a stocked pantry okay. larder at the ready but um let's see what we're working with i'm gonna start with the vegetables okay, i'm gonna be a good girl huh okay sure green beans so what am i supposed to do with this the older the bean the tougher they get <laughs> um wh why don't you draw one from each and then that's kind of what you have to work with to make a little uh cookout meal oh i how's, got it okay how's do that? I, yeah so do i have to start can i just kinda you can pick from the middle i kind of shuffled them but okay. you know chickpeas Okay. Oh, okay. That's cool. That's our protein flavor. Cinnamon. All right. And secret ingredient. Ding a ding. Guchang. Did oh. I say that properly? Um, it's a I think jang at the end. Guchang, yes. Jang, yeah. So which is a fermented chili bean. Base. Right. Right. All right. So that's what you has arrived for you to to cook with you know you have a pantry oh. too but what 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 would you make and this is the cookout oh this, this is, is a cookout yeah okay. okay so chickpeas i would do barbecued my rhubarb barbecued chickpeas okay yeah um with a rhubarb barbecue sauce with a rhubarb barbecue sauce uh -huh. i would do it a few ways if i use both canned or uh fresh chickpeas okay you know if it's a quick lunch or I arrive at someone's house and I need to do something quickly or I'm doing it at my house, I'll put them in the air fryer. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I would crisp them up and maybe have the sauce on the side and let people drizzle them. Sure. Or, yeah, I would do a rhubarb barbecue chickpea. I love that. Okay. Yeah. Green beans. Oh, my gosh. Summer green bean, corn, yeah. pea salad, which is in my cookbook. Yep. 100% fresh green beans. I hope these are going to be fresh from the farmer's I market. So, That's the yeah. way I like mm -hmm. them. But you can use frozen, too. I'm all with the frozen. Yeah. That's what I totally would do with green beans. And even if I didn't have all those other vegetables, I would take green beans, onions, um, maybe some shallots if you have them to do okay. like a crisp shallot on top. But um, I would do a dressing. Like my buttermilk dressing, the same okay. buttermilk dressing that I use for the corn salad. I just mentioned a lot of things, but <laughs> let me just zero it yeah. down. Green beans, buttermilk dressing, uh, and I love onions. So onions yeah. in some form Yeah. on that, for okay. sure. I love that. You can even grill the grilled beans, uh, green beans. You yeah. can do that mm -hmm. a little quick in the grill basket, give it a little smoke. Sure. Yeah. I like that. Cinnamon. Dessert. Yeah. Let's do a dessert okay. here. You have to have a dessert. Which dessert? Mm. Strawberry sumac cake. Mm, okay. That recipe yeah, does not have cinnamon in it, but you can add a little bit. I feel like cinnamon is one of those ingredients that you just 
You just need a little bit. Too much can overpower. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I love that cake. Uh, it is fresh berries. I haven't toyed around with the idea of using some other fruit, but why not? Yeah. Use a stone fruit. Sumac for sure. And I would add like maybe like a one-fourth teaspoon or a half a teaspoon. Eh, might be a little bit much of cinnamon. Uh-huh. But cinnamon is great in desserts. It's great in savory, but um, desserts for sure. Yeah, yeah. That sounds great. All right. And, and then, then the fermented uh, chili paste. Yeah. All right. This is a secret sauce. I mean, I'm all with like having sauces and pastes on the side. Yeah. Just like dipping, like almost like a hot sauce. Uh-huh. Uh, no? I'm almost getting like Harissa vibes too. Like you have the ribs with Harissa. Yeah. Um. But you, you, just on the side. I too. use harissa in so many different ways. First of all, I use harissa sometimes. Like if I'm doing eggs, I just like take a little dollop and put it on the side. And then f for breakfast, and then I'll have dip a little of my harissa in the eggs or sure. potatoes. It's like a long everyday Juneteenth, a.k.a. a long Saturday uh -huh. morning when I'm eating. <clears throat> and if, if it's for a cookout and people want hot sauce, um, I just put a bunch of hot sauces out. Yeah. I, I don't believe in just putting the Texas Pete out. Like, yeah. why not put a chili paste out? Why not put a harissa out? Um, and let people go for what they know. People love all kind of hot sauces. Yeah, right. Even though this is a chili paste. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. yeah. It works. I love it. Well, that sounds delicious. Uh, thank you for playing the game. And thank you so this much. This is a cool little game. Is, isn't that fun? Yeah, I can't take credit for making it, but it, it comes in handy for us. So, well, thank you so much for joining us, Nicole. This was so uh, fun you. to talk I love, to you. I love your podcast. We've had some of my favorite people on, so I'm honored to be on Salt and Spine. We're honored to have you. Thanks for being here. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack, which you can find at saltandspine.substack.com. There, you'll find two featured recipes from Nicole Taylor's Watermelon and Redbirds, the Southernish Potato Salad, and a Sweet Potato Spritz. For just a few dollars a month, you'll get tons of exclusive and bonus content from recipes, cookbook excerpts, essays, and more. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening, and we love to see your ratings on iTunes. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Monique Lamas at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.